Hello. Hey guys, it's Arden Cho. Hey, I'm Holland Roden. Hello, this is Ian Bowen. Hey you guys, this is Melissa Ponzio. Hi, I'm Lyndon Ashby. Hi, I'm Dylan Sperberry. This is Megan Tandy. This is Tyler Posey, and you are listening to Not Another. Not Another. Not Another. This is Not Another Team Wolf Podcast. Yes, it is. Oh. Woo! Hey, this is Jeff Davis. You're listening to Not Another Teen Wolf Podcast, my favorite podcast in the world. When you try to live, you wanna die. When everything you feel God, don't follow me down this road. Down this road. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Not Another Teen Wolf podcast. We are up to episode 117 of our show in our process of recapping Teen Wolf Season 5. So this week aired Season 5, Episode 13, Co-Dominance, and this is our recap of what happened. So hopefully you enjoy that. If you don't, that is fine. You may leave. Uh, (laughs) I am one of your co-hosts, Natalie, and my other co-host this week and most weeks is Karen. And Karen is our lead writer for Teen Wolf uh, news and features on our parent website, hyperbull.com. So hello, Karen. How are you today? Hi. I'm good. Kind of tired. You're going to be but tired it's cool. every, every week, aren't Teen you? Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's uh, yeah, make this worth your while. So if you'd like to get in touch with me or Karen or any of the other people involved with our podcast, uh, you can reach us on Not Another Teen Wolf podcast uh, social media. So we've got our Twitter, which is NATW podcast, our email address, which is gmail, NATW podcast at gmail.com, our Tumblr, which is Not Another Teen Wolf podcast.tumblr.com. Um, and our Instagram is NATW podcast as well if you want to follow us there. Now, going straight into codominance, I actually wanted to ask before we got started, um, you know, you obviously have a lot to do on um, on Tuesday nights, you know, staying up, uh, watching Teen Wolf and then immediately writing the recap for Hyperbole the next day. Yep. How does that usually go for you? Um, is there a specific reason why you're asking this? Yes, but not the one you think it is, actually. (laughs) Um, normally it's smooth sailing. Except, um, (laughs) no, I'm actually not talking about that. That's actually not what I was going to ask about, but feel free to tell us how your night went last night if you want to. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I had a little bit of a rough day, which is fine, but, you know, we have an old house, and sometimes it gets frustrating living here, and it got very cold, and our heat wasn't working properly, and my roommate Kristen and I were just frustrated, so we decided to drink an entire bottle of wine, like one of the big bottles. Each. Each. Um, (laughs) And it was fine for a while. And then it wasn't. And then I was getting quite drunk and um, 
took me a while to write my recap, and I messaged Natalie, and it was it was lots of fun. I'm sure she enjoyed getting all those messages at work. I'm drunk. I'm bored. Talk to me. It was good. Um, I'm trying to like make a living now. <laughs> it was actually what I was actually going to ask about is who's doing the live tweeting at the moment. Ah, that would be our friend Danielle, who is very good at it and loves doing it and is actually sacrificing watching Agent Carter live yeah, because that, she likes tweeting for us. I was a bit confused about that. I was like, hang on, hang on, is this actually Danielle tonight because what's going on? So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's fun if you want to, to chat to her. That's, you know, we get all sorts logging into the Not Another Teen Wolf podcast Twitter account, really. Like, you know, it's like... Forty-five yeah. of us now, but um, uh, but yeah, that um, it was a fun, a fun live tweet last night. I was following it along at work, even though I hadn't seen the episode yet. So that was good. What? Pardon? Didn't you get spoiled? Uh, not, not heaps. She's good at not actually spoiling, though. That's the thing. Like it's like not fully spoiler. Yeah. Anyway, but like even. The quotes, I'd be like, no, I don't want to know this yet. Oh, well, I'll, I'll avoid in future, but anyway. Um, <laughs> carrying on into the actual episode, speaking of, of quotes, favourite quote from the episode this week, mine was actually uh, Mason, because he is beautiful and, and wonderful. Just basically in his conversation with um, his boyfriend or potential man candy thing uh Co- Corey he's called Corey I keep wanting to call him Noah and Noah is the other one and Corey's kind of being like dude like I'm not evil we're all just trying to stay alive and like this seems to be like you know good and bad doesn't really matter anymore and he basically says you know I want to be alive don't you and Mason says not if I'm left standing with the bad guys because he was trying to you know be like no Corey I'm not gonna date you you're hanging out with Theo and he's evil uh and just the fact that Mason was like no like no I I, I don't want to do what it takes to stay alive if it means becoming a bad guy and it was just so cute it's like we've been calling Scott Captain America maybe Mason is the new Captain America just saying <laughs> what yeah hmm. no I agree I thought he was wonderful I liked that he said that, and I feel like Scott would approve of his statement. Yeah. How about you? What was your favorite quote of the week? Mine was between uh, the Yukimuras, and it was near the top of the episode. And it's when Kira is still injured and she's recovering, and she tells her mom, All the myths about skinwalkers say they're evil. And her mom replies, They say the same thing about Kitsune. And this legit, it made me cry. Like, I had tears in my eyes because even though as she was saying it, like, I knew this is what she was going to say. It was such a beautiful line. And I think it's so interesting that Teen Wolf has done that with the Kitsune legend where, yeah, you know, we had the Nagitsune and everything, but Kitsune are generally, like, tricksters, and so far, Kira's, you know... she's super positive, heroic. It's not a unicorn, is it? Like, you know... Right, exactly. But Kira is still this great hero, and I like the idea that, you know, the Skinwalkers are essentially the antagonists of this episode, along with several other Hmm. people slash monsters, but um, they're working 
they're working with and against Kira at the same time. Mm. And it makes it so interesting. And I just love the idea that, you know, all the myths say they're evil, but that doesn't mean they are. No, it was it was cool. A lot of their stuff was really, really cool and interesting. And, and like you said, yeah, I kind of knew that Nishiko was going to kind of say that, like, it was set up, like, it wasn't, like, a shocking statement, it was it was set up beautifully, but it still was was really nice and, and cool. Jumping straight into the episode, I suppose, like, that, um, that legend is obviously, we jump right in from where it was the previous week, uh, Nishiko and Kira in the desert, uh, about to face the skinwalkers, um, and, you know, they're going to have a test for Kira to undergo that, you know, either she'll prove herself, I guess, I think that one of the, it, it's worth discussing what they're trying to prove with this test, I suppose. Like what, what is it that means that, you know, if she passes, they'll help her. If she fails, they'll stay and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, first of all, what did you get from that? Like, what is your impression of what they were trying to test or find out about her in order to help her or force her to stay? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, and I have a theory about what ends up happening that we can discuss at the end of the episode, but my initial thought was, okay, they need to see how she does during this test in order to see, like, how bad it is, you know, how much the Kitsune controls her, and turns out it controls her quite a bit. Yeah, that was kind of what I got as well, that it was like the test. It wasn't so much a pass-fail. It was kind of like, okay, we need to see how far gone this is. If you're not too far gone, we can help you and send you on your way. If you are too far gone, you've got to stay here and become a crazy spirit lady that can't hurt the rest of the world, if you know what I mean. That's kind of what I got from it. I'm not sure if that's, you know, what, what we were meant to think, but that was my impression that it was testing to see whether she was savable or not and if she wasn't savable it wasn't like oh as punishment you you know have to stay here or oh we keep you as you know as payment or something like that it was kind of like if you can't be helped like we're going to protect the world from you in a way right and i guess that plays into one of my major questions regarding the skinwalkers is why are they helping her why do they have this like system of tests set up what what is their objective because they seem like they rely on themselves they they don't really feel evil to me but they don't feel good either they feel kind of neutral and i'm like what's the point of them helping her like okay if she fails they get to keep her and that's like one more warrior added to their ranks but if they if she ends up passing they have to help her and she has to go on her way do they you know just care about the balance of the world that much or what like I want to know so much more about the Skinwalkers. I thought they were so cool. Yeah, I mean, they might be above, you know, good and evil and stuff like that. It might be a more, yeah, more of a balanced thing and that they're, you know, they're not out to do harm, but they're not out to actively do good. But if someone comes and is like, hey, can you help me? They're like, well, you know, we'll see. Um, I, I really loved the bit where she in the very beginning, um, where the the girl throws her spear at her and, um, you know, K- says to Kira, like, 
and, and you're kind of like, oh, are they evil? Like, are they actually attacking her? Like, and it's, it's no, it wasn't that at all. Like, it wasn't that they were attacking her at all. And, I mean, they technically were, but it wasn't like, oh, we're fighting you off. It was kind of, I loved when she said to her, you know, I, this happened because, you know, you had the sword and you were afraid to use it. Like, I showed you I wasn't afraid to use the spear. And I don't know, I just I just liked, mm-hmm. liked it. But anyway, um, they're very confusing. Yeah, they are. And I just want to know, like, who are they or who were they? Because I assume they're, they failed their tests and that's why they're skinwalkers. But, like... Did they have powers beforehand? Yeah. What happened to them? You know, like, there's this whole backstory that I wish we had, or that, like, this could be what the season was about. Not that I don't find the rest of it interesting, but in this single episode, I'm, like, completely devoted to their story now, and I just want to know so much more. Yeah, I mean, it could be if you're so far gone then you that you don't, you know, that you're not able to be helped to be a normal person again that you know you you kind of have to spend the rest of eternity helping others I guess like you know you know those who can do and those who cannot do teach you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know it seems like a bit a bit of that that going on but I'm honestly really not sure yeah it's interesting to say the least but you know, not only does Kira return in this episode, but so does Roscoe the Jeep. <laughs> and I was so excited, like stupidly <laughs> excited about this. Oh, it's really Karen. dumb. What? <laughs> it was just, it feels like such a part of the show now. Yeah. And, you know, we lost Derek's car pretty yeah. early on, but the Jeep has been there for yeah. five seasons. Literally every other shot of a car in the show is, like, pulling up like it's in a Toyota commercial. Like, every mm-hmm. there's only a Toyota dealership in Beacon Hills. Like, that's it. Like, no other cars are sold there. And every time they drive a car at all, like, and pull it up, it's always, like, the car ad angle, except for the Jeep. They've managed to keep Styles in the Jeep and not trade him in for a Toyota yet. So, yeah, you know... Which I love because, once again, the Jeep's condition weirdly reflects Styles' condition because, you know, Styles is being brought back into the pack and he's kind of forgiving himself and Scott for everything that happened and he's a little rough around the edges, but, like, he's getting there. Exactly the same thing is happening to (laughs) the Jeep. Like, it's running. It's not running well. There might be a minor leak, but... You know, it's actually moving again, and this is something that we've definitely talked about in the past, but it, it occurred to me, re-watching this episode for the second time, just how much, like, Styles and the Jeep, like, parallel each other, and it's something that I'm not sure they may have, like, initially done on purpose, but... I just, I think it's fantastic, and I don't know if there's really, like, a point to it other than, you know, being able to visibly see. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's something else to it, but I love it. Yeah, aside from that, it's road trip time again. I love a road trip (laughs) time. Um, And, yes, Styles and Scott go off on their bonding road trip, which is fun. Yeah, and contrary to what I saw, this scene uh, was not actually about Roscoe. It was about Liam, who wants to help, 
and tries to tell Scott all these things that Scott already knows, um, although he didn't know about Hayden. Mm. And Liam wants to help. He wants to go help get Kira, and Scott tells him no. But Styles doesn't approve. Styles says, you know, if you're getting the band back together, <laughs> you can't leave out the drummer. Mm. And it's true. I mean, Liam is Scott's only real beta. And I thought it was interesting that he just didn't want him there. Although in his defense, he said that, you know, you didn't see the look in his eyes. So I think he's still a little worried. Yeah, it's kind of like if you want to get your pack back together, it's kind of telling that, oh, we've got to drive to another state. We're not going to start with the kid that's like right here, right now. Kid's in my living room and he wants to be in on it, but we're not going to be like, yeah, come in. It's like, you know, for him, it's for Scott, it's easier to drive to New Mexico and help Kira than it is to forgive Liam. So... That's quite a lot, I suppose. Yeah, that's saying something. Yeah. But Styles also says, I've seen the look in your eyes on Full Moon. What's mm. the difference? And I thought that was a really good introspective line, especially since not that Styles hasn't liked Liam or anything, but, you know, he's been kind of slightly opposed to him and just berating him a little bit and, and not quite letting him into the fold. But he knows clearly how important it is for Scott to have his beta back in the pack. Yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting to me that they'd be rejecting him so, so fast. Basically, back in Beacon Hills, while well, not on the road trip, uh, people keep writing Damnatio Memoriae in places. And apparently, it's someone writing this for the beast to see. So it's apparently for the last chimera, Labette, whatever you want to call it. Apparently someone has been doing this to try and remind the beast who it is for reasons that weren't super clear to me. Like we got an explanation of Damnatio Memoriae, what it is. I mean, we're not sure why this is meant to inspire um, the beast to remember who it is. Um, but there's a whole, whole bunch going around this. You know, that um, basically, like, Theo and his pack kind of see this, like, around. And the big question, like, who is out there that knows the deal with the beast and who and who would want to help it in any way, I guess? Because we learn that the beast is probably a normal person during the day, that it turns into the beast at night or something, and it's someone completely unaware of their condition. You know, someone's body who's been you know, tampered with by the Dread Doctors, but totally unaware of their condition. So that's unfortunate. And obviously there's some big questions about who it might be, I suppose. Yeah, I rewatched this scene a couple of times because there was a lot of information in this episode, which is great. I love when we start getting answers to the questions, you know, we've been asking all along. But... Theo very specifically says, you know, they're trying to remind it who it was, but it's not the Dread Doctors because the Dread Doctors only care about the Beast. So who's writing the message? Okay, must be somebody who maybe knows who it is underneath there or at least knows this could be the chance to, like, stop the the beast because Theo doesn't actually know what'll happen once it realizes what it is but or who it is but I'm guessing this is going to play into how they're going to defeat it 
who knows a lot about the beast? The Argents. So that's kind of where my brain went with that. This is Chris, maybe, or something like that? I don't know if it's necessarily Chris, because it seemed like Chris came in at the last minute when they were going up against the Dread Doctors, when Scott called them in, um, in the the mid-season premiere. So I don't know if he would have yet put all of this together if he just came into the situation. Could be somebody else, maybe. I don't know. How about my best friend, Falak? I don't think he's left Iken. He's not a prisoner in Iken. He's a doctor. He goes home and stuff. Well, I guess he was at the hospital. I don't know. Anyway. It could be Valak. I don't know. There's all sorts of, of possibilities. Um, I'd like to talk a bit more about what the Damnatio Memoriae actually means. So we've got some history lessons there. Um, how much about this did you discover? Had you ever heard of this before? I don't think so. Not before we started looking into it when we got the fresco before the season started. Mm. Yeah, um, neither. But yeah, so basically it's Thing is, like, at the time, it was used as a, a punishment um, in, to you know, saying, you know, that someone must not be remembered, like a film of dishonor, basically, upon traitors or all sorts of things. So, basically, someone is erased from history. Don't, you know, chip their faces off the statues, you know, erase their name. Uh, you know, like Mrs. Black in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix blasting Sirius's name off the family chart or like the entire premise behind the mummy i've never seen the mummy what we've had this conversation before we have yeah well i'm disappointed all over again okay um but it did remind me quite a bit of the money mummy which is basically the same thing like you know a race from history books because they did something so horrible they didn't want anybody to remember and here's the thing, though, this and this this idea was used on a serial killer named the Demon Taylor who boiled kids to eat. And this is a true story. This is not something the show made up, just so you know. Um, it was all, okay. co- all court documents related to the 1598 process against a Parisian si- serial killer nicknamed the werewolf of Chalon, or however you say that in French, or the demon tailor, were destroyed in a process to erase his memory. The killer's name is today unknown. This is a real legend. Teen Wolf did not invent this this legend. So that's kind of interesting. Someone's been doing their research there. Um, and, and in this, you know, apparently, you know, Scott jumps to the idea that this guy became a werewolf and then became the beast, uh, you know, and obviously we know about the Argents and, the, you know, the Beast of Jevedan and stuff like that, um, and that this is who the Dread Doctors have resurrected, that they've resurrected this this guy. I'm not sure how Scott jumped to that conclusion, but to me it's amazing that this is a real legend, basically. I'm, like, really messed up by this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's one of the coolest things about Teen Wolf, though, is because, like, La Bête de Gévaudan is also a, a French legend. legend. Yeah. Right, and so whenever they pull from history, it just makes it feel more real, and I really like that. 
But I completely agree with you. I don't understand how Scott jumped to this conclusion. This is something else I watched a couple of times in a row over and over again because I wasn't sure how he's putting the pieces together. We do know that the Demon Tailor lived around 1598, and we do know that the Beast was active and the whole thing with the Argent family went down around, like, the 1760s. Not to say that it's impossible for a giant werewolf to have, you know, lived that long or anything like that. We don't know exactly the rules there. But given the the time difference and given the fact that there's no proof that the Demon Taylor became a werewolf, and especially no proof that if he did, he became the beast. Like all we really know that connects them is that they both killed a ton of people, but there's been a million other, you know, serial killers on the face of the planet, especially around these times. And just because Demnatio Memoriae is connected to the beast that we're seeing now in Beacon Hills, doesn't mean that it's this random guy who, could be the beast because again, you know, there's been a million other people that have had their information wiped from the history books and stuff. So I don't know if this is one of those things that's supposed to be like, this is the information I'm giving you. You just run with it. Just go with it. You know, we're telling you what happened Mm -hmm. or if Scott's making a mistake, assuming that it's this thing, but it's actually not. I don't know. Um, my big question is is why would that statement of Damnatio um, Memoriae, what would that do to the beast? What, how is that meant to, like, you know, it's not like writing on the mirror, you know, like, hey, your name is John, go home and get control of your life, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. um, you know, why is Damnatio Memoriae the thing that will remind the beast of anything? Do they mean it in a good way or a bad way? Like, is it the Dread Doctors? Is Damnatio Memoriae going to make the Beast worse? Is it going to make it remember that it was? Say the Beast is actually this demon tailor. Is seeing the term Damnatio Memoriae going to make him even like more vengeful and angry, or is it meant to? Is it meant to kind of remind its past self of like what happened, and therefore oh, I'm angry, or is it meant to? in some way, you know, stop it and, and, and kind of bring it back down to earth. I, I really don't know. I would assume that it's there to stop it, but even so, yes, they've resurrected the beast, which, okay, let's just take, like, Scott's conclusion as gospel. They resurrected the beast, which is a werewolf, which means that when it's not being an actual werewolf, it's a person. Yeah. That still doesn't explain the fact that inside the beast, like shrouded in the beastiness, is an actual teenager from present day Beacon Hills. So even if the Demnatio Memoriae reminds the Demon Tailor that it was the Demon Tailor, that has nothing to do with the actual teenager. Yeah. Which is the person that they're trying to make remember who they actually are to stop the beast, I would assume. Yeah, I don't really know because it's, you know, they talk about like, you know, the body, you know, Theo is like the body, like who it is doesn't matter and stuff like that. And then talking about like this person probably doesn't even know what's happening to them. And they did talk about like it doesn't matter who it was like that was the shell that they put the beast into. 
how much of that came back? Like, is it is it is that person now like a complete empty shell, and it has both the personality and self of the demon tailor and the beast, or is it just a beast and teenager, or or what? Like, I don't understand how many aspects of this are meant to transfer, really. Yeah, me neither, and I just keep going back to the fact that Theo is the one who kind of told us the situation with the Beast, but even he doesn't have all the answers, so I'm wondering if we just don't know yet. Like, there's just not enough information to put together this full narrative, and I also wonder if our narrators, being mostly Theo and Scott, are the ones who are, like, you know, providing us with this information, if they're just unreliable, if they're just flat out wrong and it's meant to be like a red herring, which is totally possible. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know. It's a pretty random thing to research and make into a red herring, but yeah. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, but one of the things that I want to bring up that it's sort of, I think, important but unrelated to what's going on right now is, and tell me if you picked up on this, Scott's not really telling anyone that his powers are going wonky. No, I did not even realize that he was covering okay. up again. Because when, right? when he did it in the first episode, you're like, oh, yeah, he brought Malia. Cause, oh, yeah, shit, because he can't use his powers and he's pretending that he can. And in this conversation with Styles, until I saw you read this, I'm like, no, I totally didn't didn't pick up on that either. It's so crazy because Styles asks him, okay, did you smell like Malia's chemo signals? Is that how you know like something's going on? Like that Brayden was there. Yeah. And Styles says, no, I smelled the motorcycle exhaust, which you could probably smell without werewolf powers. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying, and Kristen brought up a couple good points with this, is like, yes, he still heard everybody's heartbeats. Mm. So he has some control over his power and he can still bring out the fangs and and the red eyes and stuff so it's not like he's totally without werewolf powers but it's still wonky and i'm like are they slowly like threading clues that something is seriously wrong with scott and this is why like reading too much into this and it's not actually and like he's fine and we're just like putting weird two and twos together that aren't actually meant to go together. I mean, totally possible. Absolutely (laughs) possible, but they keep bringing it up, and I feel like if it's not important, why would they keep bringing it up at least twice in the last three episodes? Yeah, like, oh, your powers. Exactly. I have powers. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So I have this horrible theory Hmm. that the Beast could be Scott. Really? Yeah. Because if you think about it, Scott hasn't come up against the Beast himself yet. And the Beast keeps coming out at night. As far as I can remember, we haven't actually seen Scott at night, except in this episode. And when he was there at night, we didn't see the Beast like somewhere else. This was the following night from when we last saw the Beast. And just him having the messed up powers... Him having died and been resurrected, resurrected like the beast was resurrected, us not knowing what consequences that has, it's just more things are pointing me toward it, and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this, this is kind of terrible, but I mean, given the fact that Lyndon was like, 
this is going to be a mind-blowing conclusion. It's going to be absolutely incredible. They've been leading up to it for a while. I'm, I'm looking at these threads that have been woven through multiple arcs in season five. And this one just really stands out to me. Did you come up with this on your own? I'm cra- this is crazy, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I have a lot of time on my hands, okay? <laughs> oh, my God. No, I literally never would have thought that. And the weird thing is, and honestly, everything that we know about how Teen Wolf and the team kind of work is they do it by season. So they don't necessarily look several seasons ahead. It's just not how Jeff usually works. Mm. But in 3B, Scott does like have issues with worrying about becoming this giant werewolf like rage monster. He imagines that he's into that because of everything that's going on with you know having been brought back because of the nematon and the nematon and everything and it just it just feels like it fits really well yeah and i don't know what a twist though if that's the case and um i mean the one of the little things um with when he talked to styles which i guess we'll, we'll talk about later is we'll get to it but where he says like you know one of us would get too much blood on our hands, like, and how he, you know, thought it should be him or he kind of expected it to be mm-hmm. him. So we'll get to that in a minute. But, oh, this makes a bit too much sense. And That that was playing into it too because I was like, oh, man, he said he wishes that, you know, the blood was on his hands and not anybody else's. And I'm like, be careful what you wish for because you might have just killed a bunch of people. Yeah, because obviously yeah. the Beast has killed people. Like, this, this incarnation of the Beast has already killed people as well. So, yeah, that's fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, you know, and with all all that you're saying, that the episode was called Co-Dominance, and Liam has this little bit of a science lesson. You know, sh- uh, you know, talking about the traits of co-dominance in in genetics that it's you know there's no um, recessive and dominant gene that that two genes are equally um, powerful and that they both display in, in the the subject. And you know, the visual example they were using was like better fish, like Siamese fighting fish, and how those can be red and blue and, and they can also be red and blue patchy and it's not like genetics doesn't pick one way or the other. You can just have a mix and it gets mixed together and, you know, maybe that's what Scott's got going on. Maybe he has some weird genetic co-dominance that, like, you know, he's completely 100% Scott, but he's also completely 100% the beast. Yeah, I really was wondering what co-dominance actually had to do with this arc. You know, the expression of both traits simultaneously. It reminds me a bit of just chimeras in general, but I didn't know if there could possibly be, like, a greater significance to this. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, if we don't have all the puzzle pieces yet, but maybe down the line realizing they gave us like a major clue in this episode is going to be interesting. Well, maybe we should, that's something that we should ask about what the title is meant to mean (laughs) (laughs) and see if anyone will tell us. Um, Yeah. So that was, that was a lot. Um, And then, you know, that's a a scene basically for the, the youngins. We've got Liam having to pair up with Hayden and they keep having weird arguments and then Mason and, and pa- pairing up with Corey and, and Mason kind of shoves someone else out of the way in order to be Corey's 
science partner oh and it's God. all very cute and nice and it cute. was so adorable the look on the girl's face is she's like wheeled up yeah because it's not even like he's not she's not even like move he, he literally like wheels her chair over and it was so good <laughs> and he slides in he tries to be all cool about it but he's so not cool about yeah. it and obviously you know mason and he have that Mason and Corey have that conversation um, later on um, that I that I mentioned in my quote. Like, you know, apparently they've they've gone out on a date and they want to, you know, Corey wants him to go out again. And Mason's kind of like, no, not going to do this because you, you with the bad guys. And Corey's like, there is no bad guys. And Mason's like, there's bad guys and I'd rather die than be one of them. And then they make out and it's all very nice and great. But, yeah, that was like a pretty strong statement for a young boy to make, I think. Yeah, I I like that Mason gets the significance of this because I don't think he's just saying that. I think he really truly believes that. And even as somebody who's so new to this world, like he has such a strong moral compass, which not everyone has had going into this. And we've seen a lot of characters who struggle with that. I mean, particularly Styles and Malia have been sort of, I don't know, not like kind of egging each other on, like one of them make a statement, the other one be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's kill this person. Whereas Mason has come in completely who he is and unapologetic for his high moral standard. And I just, I really like that about him. Yeah. Uh, kind of a weird, not weird, because I think it fit in really well, but something that takes us aside of the main plot is that Meredith continues to teach Lydia how to use her powers. And I want to point out here, too, like, I really liked this episode. It was really, really good. And I think part of the reason why I liked it so much is that it was so well-balanced I did want more Kira because I thought her stuff in the desert was really interesting. But I honestly thought going into this, this was going to be an episode about Kira from start to finish. And in the end, like Scott and Styles would pick her up in the Jeep and everything would be fine. And we would move on. Hmm. Turns out that was not the case at all, which was kind of cool because we got a little snapshot of everybody moving a step forward in their plot. And part of that is that, yes, Meredith is still teaching Lydia how to use her powers. And she I love like mentor Meredith. She's so badass. And it's great to have her back in this capacity where she's very much in control of herself versus the Meredith we've seen before that's been out there and a little hard to understand this Meredith definitely knows what she's talking about. But where is she? Like, where's her real body? Somewhere in Iken. Is it? Is it actually somewhere in Iken and not just, like, somewhere el- elsewhere? I would assume she was taken back to Iken because she's technically insane. Yeah, I guess. I'm still a bit lost there. Um, Like, that scene where she gets her throat ripped out. That didn't happen to her physical body. Right. As far as I know. Right. That was a method. To teach Lydia. Right. That she could use her powers, like, throw out her hands and maybe actually do something about it. It's very confusing. 
It is, no, but I think it's going to piece. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, the whole teaching powers thing comes quite easily. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm down with this. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is cool because if they continue to thread Meredith's role throughout the this back half of the season, I think it's going to make quite an interesting arc where we see not only like Lydia, you know, pick up on it instantly or figure it out for herself in a single episode, she's being taught this episode after episode and by the time we catch up to present day which is supposed to be happening in episode 15 and 16 Mm. she's going to understand how to use her powers and it's just it's a clever way to get that done i think yeah yeah um i'm still very confused by it but never mind yeah the other thing with this scene is that the orderlies obviously know something is up with Lydia. Um, not that I think that's like super significant right now, but they know they heard her scream. They know something happened with like the lights, you know, it sparked and stuff like that. So I think they're aware of this situation and, um, I don't know if they quite know what to do with it right now. But yeah, because they just, just go back to the room and she's just lying there, but they're like, I heard an explosion, I heard her scream, but then what? Like, I don't really understand. Yeah, I think it's there to teach us that, like, these orderlies definitely, I think, know that she's a banshee. Yeah, they know what they're dealing with in terms of, like, the supernatural risks and stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. The conditions of that hospital are not very nice. It's all, like, didn't. I don't think it's very sanitary. No, it does not look sanitary. Yeah, so that's fun. Obviously, Lydia's got some some more skills now, and and uh, she's got a little a little bit more in her arsenal. But we don't know how long it's going to take for her to truly get everything. So that that should be interesting. Um, and yeah, hopefully this is all going to just like be in her memory when she pops back into her body. I guess. Yeah. Now, obviously, a very part, important part of the episode was, like, the ongoing road trip between Scott and Styles, where they they keep having um, conversations, basically. Like, they, it's a really beautiful thing, because they just keep picking up the thread of the conversation whenever it, like, it kind of dies off, and then maybe a few hours later they'll be like, you know, so about that, and they kind of, like, just keep having the conversation in stages whenever they're ready to, and I, I kind of really liked that, um, you know, that it kind of... Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially since there are these awkward moments between them, like when they're at the gas station and they're pumping the gas, like they don't really look at each other at first. They kind of both look off in opposite directions like, okay, we're here. What do we talk about? This is kind of weird. And then Styles broaches the subject and it's it's like hard for them to talk about, but they know they have to get to it eventually. And I think like the moment was just right and like intimate enough you know there was nobody else around and they had a second to spare and he felt comfortable talking more about it and again I just feel like this is really realistic you know between friends sometimes you don't always just sit down and be like okay here are all of our issues and here are all the ways that we can solve them sometimes it's just like heat of the moment type of thing and that's what happened here and it was a really relaxed conversation about something really terrible that happened 
Yeah, um, and I, I, I did really like it, and, I, you know, I liked the way that they dropped into it there, and then they kind of dropped back into it later on, like, you know, kind of apropos of nothing, because you can just keep having the same conversation, you know, when you're that close and stuff like that. Um, and I loved them in general in this episode, the kind of casual way, obviously the way, you know, Styles always talks about the Jeep and how he's like, yeah, I might not have done that and stuff like that. And um, <laughs> especially when the gas ran out, I really, really loved the way that he kind of reacted with that. But the actual conversation, um, he kind of just literally starts off being like, so there's a pin and you're kind of like, oh, shit, we're going there, if you know what I mean, like. Immediately, yeah. you kind of know, and it's it's funny because just that that little idea that 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 scaffolding pin, like that, you know, just a little little rod of metal on that kind of keyring thing. That image in and of itself is probably gonna like haunt Styles for the rest of his life. You know, like just like someone, you know, if someone really wanted to fuck with him in you know ten years, and walk up to him and put one of those pins in his hand. You know, like that's gonna yeah. be rough for him forever. And he kind of explains to Scott, and Scott's just like. And he's kind of, like, trying to make these excuses. And Scott's like, no, I, I know the difference. Like, he was trying to kill you. Like, I know the difference. And, you know, I, I know what self-defense is. And Styles is, like, in disbelief that Scott is fine with this, which is so stupid but also so truthful to him, if you know what I mean. Because we were talking about that. We were talking about, you know, how easy it would be for Scott to forgive when he find out the real circumstance, but Scott forgave him even without knowing the circumstances. So, you know, even he, you know, style, he basically forgave Styles for, you know, the potential of bashing Donovan to death in the head with a wrench, but it actually wasn't even near that bad. And of course Scott is okay with it, but Styles was very taken aback by that. So yeah. How did you react when you realized that this was the big moment? <laughs> I kind of reacted the way uh, Scott reacted, which was I froze and like looked at Styles and was like, yeah, go on. It, it was such a relief. Like, even though I feel like that situation has been not for, well, yeah, forgiven at this point. But back when Scott was like, I don't really care what happened. Like, you're my best friend. This is what it is. It felt like such a relief to have that in that moment. And like, I was okay with that. Like I still wanted them to talk about it further, but I felt like things were forgiven and that was verbally stated and they could kind of move on with what they had to do. The fact that they had this downtime and styles felt comfortable enough to bring it up was really nice. And it, it felt more like it felt less about, him actually telling Scott what happened in more of a, like a relationship thing where he confided in his best friend about something that he was scared to confide in him. And then Scott was just like, I understand, you know, it's fine. And I think that Styles's disbelief that he felt that way is, is like anyone because we're always going to be our own worst critic and especially in somebody like Styles, who's extremely anxious, he's consistently going to beat himself up about it. But I think with Scott's support, it's going to get much, much, much easier over the years. 
I also really love Scott later on being like, oh, we should have kept talking like five more minutes and we would have realized that we weren't talking about the same story. And and just verbalizing yeah. that, verbalizing that regret, verbalizing like the waste of time, the waste of energy, like how much damage it caused is really – I didn't really expect them to like verbalize that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that was really important for us as the audience to hear because I know a lot of fans were complaining about the fact that, you know, if somebody had just said something, then it would have been fine. And of course, you know, there goes your conflict. Mm. I think that while Scott and Styles and the show in general don't have issues with miscommunication a lot, it's going to happen sometimes. And I think if it's going to happen, it's going to be about a situation this big. Mm. And I think it makes sense considering everything else that was going on with Hayden dying in mm. the room, you know, in the vet's office right inside. That kind of was like, I can't talk about this right now. But I think it's really important that Teen Wolf was like, yeah, we know that you guys weren't happy with that, but you know, the characters are understanding too. Like they know what's going on as well. And they knew it wasn't a good thing And, and it's true. for them to actually you know, tackle that. Like it's something that can happen. It's just, it's kind of a lesson in just how easy it is that kind of issue to occur, that kind of miscommunication to occur. Honestly, it can be that simple, you know, and, it's not that unrealistic for that to happen and and yeah so everyone learned from this or something <laughs> yeah well i guess that's what i'm i'm trying to say is that and you and i have talked about this a lot lately like plot holes versus setups and i don't want to get into that whole thing yeah. but the fact that a lot of people were complaining about, you know, Scott and Styles always talk through everything. This isn't this is like uncharacteristic of Scott to jump to this conclusion. Whereas I think, you know, if people just hang on and wait, they're going to see that there's a reason why this happened. And therefore, like, it's going to be resolved down the line. Not to say that, like, Teen Wolf has zero potholes ever, but to jump to that conclusion so quickly is a disservice to the show because if it's a big enough deal, like I think this was, I mean, this is two friends, two best friends falling apart. They're going to go back and they're going to patch it up and explain why certain things happened. And they did. And I think it, it was better for that. And the character moment between those two, this episode was fantastic because yeah. of it. Like if they're going to have a, breakup you know it's going to be because they're not on their usual footing with each other it's not like them being on the usual footing of each other isn't just a result of the breakup it's also a symptom that led to it like it's not like you know oh they would never do that with each other so how can this have happened it's like yeah that's a warning sign that something is very wrong not oh this is out of character if you know what I mean exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and so hopefully that's clear, but <laughs> never mind. Um, the other big point of this is, again, they kind of drop back into this conversation later on and, you know, they're talking, you know, Scott says, I knew, like, I knew this was going to happen. Like, I knew sooner or later one of us would get too much blood on our hands. And, you know, I, I didn't know if he meant just between, you know, him and him and Styles. He's kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, he's, he's also like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, you get all into this stuff, like, 
you know, because of me, like, because of people that, you know, people you don't even know, like, stuff like that, you're all wrapped up in this because of me, I'm the one that's the centre of all of this, and Scott also says, you know, that casually, he was like, I always kind of assumed it would be Malia, the blood on the hands, and they also do have a conversation, when they talk about how he knew about Brayden, they kind of have that conversation about, you know, what's Malia doing with the Desert Wolf, and they kind of come to the conclusion that she is going to try and kill her and that maybe she doesn't want to be associated with them because you know they don't do the killing so scott does have in mind this idea that malia was potentially a risk in that department but you know he wasn't like oh my god styles i can't believe this has happened to you of all people it was sort of something he was waiting for in general and waiting to figure out how to handle which is sensible i mean you'd 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 think he would be you know I, i couldn't really imagine him being shocked you know in the moment oh my god we fight people and other people around us get killed but like one of us is gonna kill someone one day no that's too much to imagine you know like gotta draw the line somewhere can't imagine that ever happening so yeah it's kind of something scott's been preparing for but his big thing is that he says it should have been me i'm the one that drags you into all of this i should be the one Having this final responsibility, like, basically kind of saying you shouldn't have to do my dirty work, which is interesting because we've spent five seasons talking about how Styles is perfectly equipped to do Scott's dirty work, so that was kind <laughs> of interesting for me as well. But, yeah, what did you think of kind of Scott's reflection on this topic? Like, can we just remember for a second that this is, like, a 17-year-old high school boy mm. who's, like, we fight bad guys in our spare time. I should be the one with the blood on my hands to take that for the team because I'm your leader and I don't want you to have to deal with that. I'd rather take the burden of everything than Mm -hmm. see you go through that. Mm -hmm. Like there are adults who are less mature emotionally than Scott McCall. And it astounds me. Yeah, there's a really, 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 really good quote from a fan fiction I've been reading recently about Star Wars, talking about Luke and uh, his attitude towards the responsibility placed on him. And Brooke, Brooke keeps talking to me about how how similar Luke can be to Scott, um, probably even more than Steve and, and Scott. Um, and uh, that I'll send to you later, the, the, the particular quote, because it is so similar to Scott, but... Um, But, yeah, he kind of really, you know, doesn't want to put that burden on other people when he's the one that has the responsibility. He has thought about, you know, what it it means to be in his own position and what it means for the people around him. And, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. It's something he's, he's thought about before and was kind of prepared for. So, you know, but it is very ominous if you do think he is the beast. Yeah, I just, I feel like there are a lot of very subtle signs pointing toward this, and it's making me a little worried. (sighs) That's sad. Yeah, well, speaking of Malia, um, and blood on her hands, she does actually get some blood on her hands, literally, in this episode when she attacks Theo. And, not gonna lie, this was very satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. Because she just throws him around, breaks him up, his arm, punches him in the face a couple dozen times, and I just like it when she goes all ragey. But 
Um, Theo says that he can help her find Deaton in the Desert Wolf. The Dread Doctors can do it. He says, I know how they found everyone. So Why is he even there? Right. Why, why does he care in the first place? How does this fit into his plan? I don't know. Maybe he just likes Malia. Maybe he's got a weird crush on her. I mean, it seems that way. Although he flirts with everybody, so... He's gross. He's gross, and I don't like him. But yeah, she she beats him up, so that's good. But apparently he knows how to find um, the Desert Wolf or just find people in general, so... Have we even seen the Dread Doctors this season themselves? Yes. We saw them in this episode, actually, um, when Tracy and... Theo were at the high school, and the Beast showed up. Mm. Oh, yeah. And we saw them when Chris shot at them oh, yeah. after Oh, Scott yeah, yeah, in the, in, in the premiere, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's very um, very confusing. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he still thinks he can get Malia on his team if he, you know, if he helps her. Or maybe, you know, like we know, we find out at the end that, you know, he's looking for, and maybe this is all part of his, like, hey, get me in with an alpha, because I want to become a real werewolf, or something like that. Though he apparently has beef with the Desert Wolf from the past before, or at least that's the impression I got when he was talking to Malia about it in 5A. Yeah, he definitely knows something more than he's let on thus far. Yeah. (sighs) So Kira's test is a weird quest, vision quest situation in which she battles an Oni, apparently, because this is, like, maybe her manifestation of, like, her greatest demons. Um, And when we see shots of her fighting it, it seems to not be, like, really there. But then it is really there for her because it really injures her and she, like, really gets its mask and stuff like that. So um, any, any idea what was going on there? Oh, God. Um, I mean, it was confusing because every time she slices it, she gets hurt in that same exact position. So it's like she's battling and hurting herself, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure is part of the test and, you know, says something metaphorically, etc. But I was still a little confused about it. And I wonder, you know, obviously she uses her Kitsune spirit to defeat it. But if she hadn't done that, what would it have taken? Like, would she had had to run it through? Because she's uninjured afterwards. But is this meant to be like, you need to be brave enough to use the sword to do what needs to be done Mm. and not rely on your fox spirit? Yeah. I but mean, even so, be. I feel like that's dangerous advice to give. Yeah, I mean, the the woman says to her, you know, you wield the sword, the kitsune wields you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, um, yeah, it's just like she, you know, she isn't fighting in, maybe there's like a number one way to fight, which is, you know, actually with skill and stuff. And then she's depending too much on this, like, uncontrollable part of her to, like, you know, rely on. Okay, like, have you seen have you seen Supergirl? Yeah. Are you up to date with it? Uh, no, I'm not, actually. I'm two episodes behind. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. That's fine. Um, but the bit where Alex teaches Kara to fight in the Kryptonite Chamber so that Kara has a 
normal level of strength, if you know what I mean, because mm-hmm. she actually needs the skill to back up just the fact that her strength is that much, if you know what I mean. I don't know if yeah. this is what we were trying to say about Kira. Like, it seems to be more than that. Like, I don't know if that's what, you know, if the skinwalkers have a bit more of a concern than that. But it could be a part of it, like something about, like, that you're, you know, relying on the wrong things and, and that, you know, or, the, or the, that Kitsune spirit is overtaking you um, and therefore you rely on it or something like that. Right. I, I think she's literally, like, feeding the fire yeah. of her Kitsune spirit and it's consuming her. I mean, even if you look at Noshiko, how often have we actually seen her use her Kitsune powers versus when she's used the sword? I mean, she's very rarely used the Kitsune powers on purpose, has she? Not not much. Exactly. So I feel like she knows this balance that Kira hasn't yet figured out. It's not like you can use your kitsune spirit all the time because it is it is a bit of an issue it is something that you have to constantly keep in check and like with supergirl if you lose that power what does that mean you know you can't go into life unskilled hmm. so i think part of it is teaching her something else to rely on but also making sure she doesn't over rely on the kitsune spirit and that turns against her yeah, um, yeah, because Nishiko barely ever pulls out anything. Barely ever. I don't, maybe once when she brought Scott back to life, or was that Kira that did that? That was Kira. I don't know, if, have we ever seen her use her, her power then? I don't know. Um, um, we may have, like, once or twice an example, but she definitely doesn't, like, in any way let that, you know... She, she really doesn't tap into it that much, so I don't know if that's a big big part, part of it or not. Yeah, so basically she kind of finds out that, you know, from, from Nishiko, and Nishiko, again, it's a really good episode for showing that relationship between Nishiko and Kira that we've talked about before as being, like, a bit cold. Like, they're not, like, that cuddly, are they? They're not, like, oh, feelings no. together. Like, Nishiko's kind of like, you know, yeah, this... Their methods to help you could take time, you know, months or years. And, you know, Kira's like, what, you seriously want me to do this? And Nishika's like, yep. And if the only option for you staying alive is you staying here and becoming one of them and you, like, are alive in some way, then we're going to do that. And so Nishiko, like, she definitely wants what's best for her daughter, but she's very cold about it. And, you know, she's very defensive of her daughter. She's very proud, but she's not that cuddly is she no and i don't necessarily see that as a bad thing i think that you know that's just the relationship she they have together because clearly clearly nishiko cares deeply about her daughter Mm. she's willing to never see her again and turn her into a skinwalker if that means at least she can stay alive and i think that kind of love is extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, and it, it is definitely, she's definitely got a very strong personality type, um, Nashiko, and it came through very, very much in this episode. So, yeah, the methods, you know, she was willing to, to have that happen, basically, that, you know, that, that they're healing or that they're training, whatever it is that they do to help the, um, you know, that would have helped Kira could have taken a very long time. 
but apparently, according to the Skinwalkers, the Kitsune quote-unquote passed the test. The Kitsune defeated the, the demon. You know, the Kitsune passed the ordeal. Kira did not pass the ordeal um, herself. And, you know, she they basically say that there's no hope for her and that she would have to stay as a skinwalker. And again, this feels kind of a bit like you're a menace to society, so we're putting you in supernatural jail, if you know what I mean. That's kind <laughs> of what it felt like. It wasn't, you know, it's it's not it's not so much a, you know, oh, you failed, so now you have to pay the price. It's kind of you're too dangerous, so you have to stay here and can't leave. That's kind of what they're stuck with. And then Nishiko's like, you know what, actually, no. And basically they the girls... Uh, the women, the um, Yukimura women try to fight off the skinwalkers and, and not let Kira stay. And Nishiko never expressed before that moment that she was would not have Kira stay, you know. So she kind of has a change of heart, like, no, I'm actually, no, you're not going to stay here. So I don't know why she changed her mind there when she was willing to let her do that before. But I guess when it came down to it, she, she was like, actually, maybe not. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if... Well, first of all, I just want to say that if Supernatural Jail either looks like Eichenhaus <laughs> or the New Mexico Desert, give me the New Mexico Desert because <laughs> I would much prefer that to Eichen. Mm. Um, but aside from that, like, I also wonder if this constitutes their methods mm. because she sort of half passed, half failed. They told her... What was wrong with her? You wield the sword, the Kitsune spirit wields you. They they didn't really let her go, but I also think they could have chased after them or fought back doing something else. I don't know. I wonder if this whole, like, it could take months or years thing is like them planting the seed in her mind that here are your problems and this is what you have to work on. You have to choose to work on it yourself. Yeah, it could be. Like... It's not like, you know, they clearly don't care about protecting the world enough to, you know, be like, hey, come back here, you, you know, like, you know, Chasey. Or maybe they will. Maybe they'll be in the rest of the episodes, like, coming to try and get Kira and and take her back. Like, maybe they feel like she belongs to them now and this won't be the last we see of them. But I don't know. I hope this isn't the last we see of them. That'd be awesome. But... The reason why they don't necessarily run after them is because Scott and Styles show up in the Jeep. And Scott literally barrel rolls out of Roscoe in order to stand by them to fight. I screamed when this happened because it was so perfect. I mean, it is actually... If you have to drop out of something that's moving, rolling does have a purpose. But they could have just stopped yeah. the car and he could have gotten out. Right, but it was so epic. I just loved that they did this. It was great. Yeah. Um, but they they do all get into the Jeep and Nishiko splits the spear in half longwise, mm-hmm. which was really awesome. Yeah. Um, and Kira and Scott make out and Kira says that she loves Scott, blah, 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 all that stuff happens. But the thing I picked up most in the scene, other than the fact that nothing's really changed between Scott and Kira, which I liked, it wasn't like weird awkwardness. It was like, oh my God, I've missed you so much. 
But the other thing that I picked up was like Nishiko kind of looked worried when Kira said that to Scott. And I didn't know if that was meant to have any sort of significance or if it was just like a mom thing. Because she looked a little happy, too. She smiled a little bit, but she looked kind of worried. I don't know. I mean, I don't think Nishiko really approves of anything, but (laughs) (laughs) what? It's just funny. Uh, I don't know. I I can't say I noticed, like, "Uh uh-oh, she's in with Scott now, but maybe she was. I don't know. So they get back, and basically Liam is like, hello, I found out all this stuff. Were you going to listen to me now? Because he's been hanging out, you know, him and Hayden make out in the library, and, you know, they have all of their little, like, moments, and they're kind of bickering the whole time about, like, oh, you're hanging with Theo, and then he's like, oh, Theo sucks, and they're still trying to work around that, but they clearly still like each other. Anyway, Liam has gathered some useful information, which is that Theo is apparently looking for a a werewolf, a blind alpha. I don't know where he overhears this or if, like, Hayden tells him, but this is information that Liam brings to Scott, and obviously that's Deucalion, even though as far as we know, Deucalion's not blind anymore, but I guess Theo's information is a bit outdated. Um, Right. Well, really quick, I think, and I could be wrong, because there was a lot of information this episode, I think Mason heard that from Corey. Ah, okay. Did we actually hear him say that? I think so, but it's also, like, there was a lot going on. So that could be wrong, but that's what I remember happening. And also, just to bring this up because it is relevant, in trailers we have seen Deucalion, and he has been blind. Of course, Mm -hmm. we don't know anything about that yet, but that certainly poses lots of questions. Yeah, what happened there? Maybe the weird healing thing they did in season two, or was it 3A, was only temporary. Maybe. Or maybe it's like Pinocchio, and like, you know, he lies, his nose grows longer, Dukeling kills people, and he loses his eyesight. Yeah, it could be. Um, Or it's like Buffy spoiler. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not allowed to say anything anymore. I love it. I love it. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, not off the top of my head. Angel Buffy spoiler. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, basically that's it. I mean, was there anything else about this episode, like the plot that you wanted to discuss, or, or what? What's the situation there? No, I think that was essentially it. Yeah. Um, so we've got a bit of feedback, obviously, this episode after, you know, everything that's been going on, uh, with Ravenclaw 1991 saying, I don't understand why they made the skinwalkers have such messed up sounding voices. I couldn't even understand half of what they were saying. It was just like the Dread Doctors. I was a bit confused about the voices as well, and I was kind of expecting it to get to the point where, like, one of them kneeled down and spoke to her one-on-one, and then when I thought maybe they'd do, like, when they spoke one-on-one, she'd be, like, dropping away the weird voice and, like, speak normally, but... That didn't happen, Mm -hmm. so apparently that's just their voices. Who knows? I have no idea. Any thoughts? Um, I mean, I think aesthetically they did it because it sounds scary, Hmm. Um, which is sort of like the thing with the Dread Doctors. I think it just sounds scary. I was kind of bummed, too, because I wanted to hear what these women sounded like. Like, did they have accents? Did they sound, you know, kind of loving? Did they sound really harsh i think with the kind of layered voices that they had it made it really hard to understand 
some of the inflections and yeah, I didn't understand everything they said either, but, um, I mean, I kind of liked it because it made them feel more like spirits, Mm. but I didn't like it because I wanted to actually hear what they were saying. (laughs) Yeah, no, fair enough. The next one's from Twitter, which is from Emily, always a teen wolf. Oh, that's a good handle. Who says, uh, why is Theo helping Malia? Uh, We kind of tackled this before, essentially no idea. Um, I'm sure it plays into his plan some way. Maybe he's still trying to get Malia on his side. Maybe it has to do with bringing the Desert Wolf in to the game and hoping that the Desert Wolf will take out some of his enemies, which sounds exactly like something Theo would do. My answer is that he wants to be as contrary as possible. What do you mean? He just wants to fuck with people. He just wants to do exactly what people think that he won't do. So he wants to be as contrary as possible. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to help you. You know, like, just, you know, do the thing that people don't expect, but not in a good way. But, like, just be like, yeah, I'm going to mess with people's heads. So this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, That's not a real theory, but I just hate him. So, yeah. (laughs) Going on from that, um, Chloe Palka. So Chloe says, if you had to go on a date with one of the Chimeras, which one would it be? Karen? Hayden. Hayden. <laughs> okay. I would pick Corey, even though he is gay. Um, I would be Mason and pick Corey, but. Oh, I mean, I don't think Hayden would be into me, but, you know, I just think she's the less, like, the least murderous and most self self-sufficient and uh also the prettiest so you know (laughs) yeah (sighs) yeah i would pick Corey. uh okay what else um next we have shy simeon who says any theories on why theo is looking for deucalion um again somehow it plays into everything maybe deucalion because he is a bit older has some information that Theo needs or it's a way to get his power because, you know, he wants to be an alpha. He wants red eyes. He wants to be real. Deucalion could possibly have the means to do that for him. Or he, would he kill Deucalion to be the alpha? Yeah. (sighs) I don't know. Uh, So last tweet, um, Elise Maybury. Hey there, I'm Elise. Do you think there will be any consequences for Kira and Shika refusing to follow through with the Skinwalkers? I've got a feeling, yes. I've got a feeling they're going to show up at an inopportune moment and be like, yep, you haven't paid your dues, we're taking her, if you know what I mean. But maybe not, I don't know. It would be my guess. I mean, I feel like that whole test thing, because it didn't really have an actual conclusion, she didn't conclusively pass it, Hmm. it's going to up again i don't know if the skinwalkers are going to show up elsewhere i really hope they do but i think regardless both kira and by association nishiko have to deal with the fact that the kitsune is still controlling her Mm. yeah I, i don't know honestly so yeah all right so Yeah, so that's it for that. You've got a little bit of news this week um, about, you know, some of about season 5B. Did you want to kind of talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, it's just a quick thing that um, Jeff said in an interview to EW in that um, he actually revealed what Gerard's endgame is, which I thought was really interesting. I didn't think we would know until it popped up in the episode, but it actually makes sense because Jeff says Gerard wants the legacy of his family back. If they can defeat the Beast of Jevedon again, he believes he'll restore the good name of the Argents to its legacy. He wants immortality in that sense. And I feel like, of course, this is what Gerard wants. This is what Gerard cares about. And considering all of the stuff that the Argent family has been through in the last couple of years, he probably feels like they're the laughingstock of the hunter community. Yeah. And so the thing that made them famous to begin with. You can't pass up that opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, we haven't seen too much other, you know, from other hunters. Is it like, oh my god, the Argents have gone all soft. They team up with werewolves and stuff now. Like, you know, does does Gerard want them to be like evil? You know, like the the kind of anti all supernatural stuff again? Or you know, I'd expect that of him really. It's confusing because we know his prior motivations now. He had no problem becoming a werewolf in order to to cure himself. We know that Kate became a were-jaguar. I mean, we don't necessarily know how he feels about that, but I, I'd be surprised, I think, if he was totally cool with it, but then again, I would also be surprised if he was like, no, we should definitely kill them all, because Chris is never going to go for that. And his, like, Gerard's past actions prove that he didn't have as much of a problem with it as everyone initially thought. Yeah. I don't know. Was there anything else in this interview that you wanted to to talk about besides from Gerard, or, or anything else? Um, that was, yeah, that was pretty much like the big thing to me. Um, they talked about like unmasking the dread doctors, which we had heard about before. Um, so nothing felt super new to me except for the part about Gerard. Mm. Yeah. Um, I had a weird theory recently with that female orderly and then the male creepy orderly, the creepy hipster guy. What if, I'm like, what if the Dread Doctors are, like, a weird, like, alter ego of the Eichenhaus, the creepy horror hmm. of Eichenhaus stuff? Like, is that a potential, or are they something in and of themselves? Well, I mean, we know the Dread Doctors have been around for quite a long time, and I think we're, because of their aesthetic, we're kind of aware of their origins. Yeah. So I don't necessarily see that happening, but that's definitely interesting. When is Valak going to come and tell us about what happened when they came before? I don't know. Mm. Valak definitely still knows more than we do, so he has to come and tell us stuff. Oh, come on. I want I want to know. Let him let him let him come and have a whole flashback episode or something. Anyway, yeah. All right, is that everything that you've got for this week? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, that's about all. Um, just to, again a note that the writer for this week's episode was Will Wallace, who we've had on the podcast before when he was the writer's team assistant. He has written an episode before and is now a proper, uh, a, an actual staff writer, um, you know, in the team. So he's one of the team 
doing the doing the plots and and the episodes for five B and and for going on into six as well. And we're going to try and speak to him this weekend about um you know Kira and about some of the other plots that came up in this episode as well as as well as all sorts of other things. You know we might be able to get something about the rest of the season. Uh, so yeah, if you've got any specific episode you know questions about this episode about you know how something why something happened. Um, or something like that, we can give it a red-hot go when we speak to him this weekend. Um, Will, you may or may not know if you've listened to us before, is a huge, huge nerdy fan of the podcast and has listened to every single episode of Not Another Teen Wolf podcast. We used to think that he was a spy being paid by MTV to check up on us, but no, he just wanted to be our friend. So we are very happy that he wrote this episode. Akira is his favourite character, so um, it's interesting that he got to do this story for her and and how he came up with this and i'm sure he'll have something about the research about the different mythologies as well so that's something you'll be able to hear before um before the episode airs next week before um episode 314 comes out uh, 314 before 514 comes out we should be able to have that interview for you as well so yeah you excited about that karen I am definitely and as you were talking about 514 I was like I'm not sure I know the uh, title for that episode about what's gonna happen in it wait what do you know anything at all about what's gonna happen in 514 um I just know it's gonna be centered around Malia yeah, yeah. but it's called the sword in the spirit maybe it's gonna keep being about Kira I don't know that that I don't know what's going on there but interesting yeah that's i suppose that's about it then um Mm -hmm. we will see you guys uh next week um and yeah feel free to get in touch with any questions that you might feel like that an episode writer could answer about this week's episode and we'll see what we can do uh in the meantime yeah have a nice week and keep enjoying teen wolf and tell us what you think of the potential of scott being the beast so yay for that (sighs) Thanks. <laughs>